Well, please turn with me in your copy of God's holy word to the book of Jude. This evening, we will spend our time in Jude verses 17 through 23. Jude 17 through 23. Please stand with me for the reading of God's word. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life, and have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Here ends the reading of God's holy word. Let us pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would bless it to us this evening as we spend uh, the next few moments diving down deep into these few verses in the book of Jude. May you help us uh, understand the gospel of Jesus Christ better. Would you help us to see Christ clearly with the eyes of faith? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, around the year 410 AD, the citizens of Rome lived in fearful expectation that at any moment, the enemy that is encamped all around their city, the the Visigoths, the so-called pejoratively named barbarians, who were encamped all around their city, lived in fear that they would enter the gates that they would destroy them and everyone and everything that they know. These Roman citizens lived in a state of constant vigilance, always ready to defend themselves, their families, and their property. I think Jude in this passage this evening is telling you and me that we are in some ways like those Roman citizens. We have enemies all around us while we carry on in this life full of sin and misery. As Christians, you and I worship a Savior that the world hates. The world, the flesh, and the devil are trying to get us to neglect Christ, to forget Christ any way we can, or any way they can. The difference, though, between us and the Roman citizens is, of course, that we cannot be defeated by our enemy because we are in Christ. Christ has already accomplished the work of destroying the powers of this evil age. But that doesn't mean that we can't fall prey to the wiles of the devil, to the allures of this world, and to the pull of our own sinful flesh. And so like the Romans, you and I must be vigilant to keep any and all barbarians out of Rome. You and I must not let our hearts and our minds be transfixed upon the things of this world. To do so is to allow those same barbarians, uh, the, the world, the flesh, and the devil, to ransack the city of our lives and to destroy us. No, instead, God's people must have our eyes fixed upon the cross of Christ. J.C. Ryle, uh, the English, uh, Anglican bishop, wrote, quote, Look at the cross. Think of the cross. Meditate on the cross. And then... Go and set your affections on the world if you can. 
If our hearts and our minds are so consumed with the cross of Christ as they must be, the so-called pleasures of this world will be inconsequential and unworthy of our time. This is true of of the church as a whole just as much as it is of us as individual Christians. We all, but especially the church's ordained leaders, must remain vigilant and must stay focused on the mission that Christ gave his bride, the church, to do. We must never allow the world to influence the message or the means by which we proclaim the gospel. Now, we alone in the church have the words of life. And if God's people aren't hearing his word at church, where are they going to hear it? And so here at Christ Church, we are committed to preaching the gospel each Sabbath, twice, pointing each and every one of us to Christ our Savior week by week. But we also have to understand something that Jude has been showing us all throughout this short letter. Not only are there enemies outside of us, outside of our our own lives as individuals and outside of the church who are attacking us, there are also some who come into the church seeking to devour the sheep instead of nurture them. There's also indwelling sin in your heart and mine that is seeking to overtake us. Our Lord Jesus tells us that wolves will come into the church. Matthew 7, verse 15. He says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inward, inwardly are ravenous wolves. These people may look like sheep, but it's just a ruse. And falling for their trick and allowing them to remain in the church puts God's sheep in deadly peril. And this is precisely the situation that Jude is addressing as he writes to these Christians. There are men who have infiltrated the churches of Christ and are leading the sheep astray. They're leading them astray with their error-ridden teaching as well as with their antinomian living. And so Jude is writing this letter to the Christians to expose the behavior of these ravenous wolves. While the bulk of this letter has dealt with exposing these wolves, in this final section of the body of the letter, you see verses 24 and 25 are are a closing doxology. And so these verses 17 through 23 really close out the body of this letter. Um, In in these verses, instead of merely addressing as he's done, um, or exposing as as he has done these wolves, Jude is, is turning once again to directly address his Christian readers. He's doing this in verse uh, 17 and then again, again in verse 20 for the first time since he did it back in verse 5. As we've seen over the past few weeks as we've explored this short letter, Jude is writing to Christian churches which have been infiltrated by men who are not what they seem. They may appear to be saintly Christians, But inwardly, they're really ungodly perverters of God's grace. They are leading people astray by their false teaching and their aberrant way of life. And so the bulk of this letter contains descriptions and 
condemnations of these men. Jude here is showing what kinds of evil things they do and how God will punish them for it. But here in verses 17 through 23, although Jude does still have a few more things to say about the wicked sins that these men commit, he moves from criticism to encouragement. He, he's going from the negative of what these men do to the positive aspects now of what Christians must do in response to all of the wickedness that is around them. And this positive charge that we find in verses 20 through 23 is what we're going to spend most of our time this evening discussing and, and exploring. Here, Jude is calling these Christians, he's calling you and me to persevere in the faith by the help of the Spirit in the name of Christ to the glory of God the Father. But first in verses 17 through 19, Jude gives his final word on the wickedness of these men who have come into the churches. There he says, and we'll read it again. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is, those, it is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. These scoffing, ungodly, licentious, worldly, spiritless people sow division among the flock of God. They, as Jude has already said earlier in this book, they deny Christ. And they do so, as we see here, by dividing up his body into distinct factions, pitting Christians against one another instead of encouraging everyone to dwell in brotherly Christian unity. But the Christian, Jude says, must not be like this. He or she must be different. And that's what we find in verses 20 through 23. He writes, But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire to show to others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by flesh. You and me, dear believer, must not divide and tear apart the people of God. No, instead, you must build yourself up, Jude says, in your most holy faith. Those perverters of God's grace want to destroy the people of God. They want to divide them and pit them against one another. But Christians must be builders, not destroyers. This is the work that you and I and all godly people must be about, building ourselves and each other up in our holy faith. And this is where Jude begins in his positive commendation to the church, this, these, these um, imperative statements of what the church must do now in light of all that he has said before. They must build themselves up. These pronouns that, jo that Jude uses throughout these verses are all plural. He says, uh, yourselves and in your faith, um, all of these are plural. He's not talking to individuals in the church. 
but to churches as a whole, to the congregation as a whole. What that means is that this building that Judas is telling us to do, this work that he is telling us to do, is a corporate activity. It's not an individual one. Each individual Christian must, yes, build his, his faith, but he does so in the context of the church, of the Christian community, with fellow believers in Christ. This building up must happen in the context of a local church where you are called to join together with other like-minded believers, encouraging one another to persevere in the faith, to keep yourselves in the love of God, and to eagerly long for the mercy of Christ, which will be revealed on Judgment Day. God's people all throughout Scripture are commanded to meet with fellow believers each and every week to worship God. Church is a non-negotiable part of the Christian life. You and I cannot be a Christian. We cannot call ourselves Christian and refuse to be a part of the body of Christ. We cannot call ourselves a Christian and refuse to gather with other people who do the same. No church will be perfect. But each and every one of us is called to join with the saints in a local congregation as we all seek to worship our Savior, Jesus Christ, together and to follow God's commands. We all, all of us, every one of us together is God's building project. Christ is the great cornerstone. The apostles laid the foundation and we are built upon it. This is the work that God's word is calling you and me to accomplish. This building up of one another in the faith. This is that task that you and I must undertake. Remember, Jude tells us in verse 3 why he writes this letter. He says there, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. You and I are called to contend for the faith. We must contend for the faith. That is Jude's purpose in writing, is that we all would contend for the faith. But how do we do that? Well, one of the ways that we contend for the faith is, as we've seen in verses 5 through 16, is by fighting against error in the church. You and I must make sure that we're not behaving like the wicked men described in these verses, verses 5 through 16. We have to discipline as well those within the church who are behaving in those ways. All right, so verses 5 through 16 uh, tell us one way to contend for the faith is that we don't behave like these men and we discipline those who do behave like these men. But that's not the only way that we're called to contend for the faith. Here we see another aspect of what it means to fight for our faith. Fight for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. We contend for the faith by growing in the faith. By building one another up in the faith. 
you contend for the faith by persevering in your holy faith, as he says, by the power of the Holy Spirit in the name of Christ to the glory of the Father. To build our faith, to fight for our faith, you and I must do what Jude says right here in these verses. Verses 20 and 21. We must pray in the Holy Spirit. We must keep ourselves in the love of God and wait with eager longing and hopeful expectation for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's it, dear ones. That's the formula. But what does that look like in our lives? What does it look like in your life? Well, the first thing that Jude tells us we must do to build our faith, to fight for our faith, is to pray in the Holy Spirit. We are to be praying in the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8 and verse 26 that the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Paul goes on to say, For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Dear ones, if you're like me, you often find that you don't know what to pray for. You don't know how to pray. Well, take comfort because you have the Holy Spirit, dear believer, who intercedes for you, who takes your meager prayers and makes them worthy to be heard by God. When we don't know how to pray, when you or I are, are, are too overwhelmed with the hardships of life to articulate our thoughts well in prayer, or when we're too overjoyed with God to clearly express our gratitude to Him, or when we're feeling far from God, we don't know if He's listening to us. The Spirit is with us, praying on your behalf, making your requests and your praises and your laments known to God, who longs to hear from His beloved children. Prayer is also a means by which our faith is strengthened. Christians are called to contend for our faith, Jude is saying here. And we do this, we, we contend for our faith, not primarily on the field of battle with our sword in hand, but rather in the prayer closet, on our knees. One way to build your faith is to be a man or woman of prayer. Make prayer a priority in your life, dear one. Make sure that you're dedicating time every day to pray to God. Pray by yourself. Pray with your spouse. Pray with your children. Pray with your church. Pray to our God. This is one way that our faith is being built up. And this is one way that we fight for our faith, against the powers of sin, against the powers of the world, the flesh, and the devil. But another means of building our faith, Jude says here, is he says in verse 21, keep yourselves in the love of God. In verse 1, um, Jude tells us that believers are beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. So we're told in verse 21 that we must keep ourselves in the love of God. 
And in verse 1, we're told that we are uh, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. So which is it? Is God doing the work of keeping and loving me, or am I doing the work of loving God and staying in that love for God? Well, in John chapter 15, Jesus uh, tells us something very similar. And Jude, is, I'm sure, has this, um, this uh, exchange here uh, in John chapter 15 in the back of his mind as he's writing this letter. For Jesus Christ in John 15 verses 9 through 10 says this, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. How do we abide in the love of God? How do we, how, how do we keep ourselves in the love of God? Jesus very clearly says it's by doing what He commands and doing all that He commands. For that is how we as God's people grow in our faith is by following after our Savior, Jesus Christ, and growing in our love for Christ, abiding in the love of Christ by doing what he commands. The Apostle John says something similar in his first letter when he talks, about, um, uh, talks to those believers about love. In this passage, that, this wonderful passage in, in 1 John chapter 4, where he tells us that God himself is love, he also talks about what it means to abide in the love of God and how we must do that. John, 1 John 4, verse 13. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So what does it mean to keep ourselves in the love of God, as, as Jude uh, commands us to do. Well, it means that we follow the commandments of Christ. We abide in Christ. We abide in the love of Christ by doing what he commands. And as John says, we love our brother. We love those around us. We as an expression of the love with which God has loved us in Jesus Christ. We, we have hearts overwhelmed with the love of Christ that we can't help but love other people. So God loves us and keeps us, as he says in verse 1. We also are to keep ourselves in the love of God. Verse 21. 
We love God by obeying God. And thereby we remain in the love of God. Also, Jude says, we await the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. The Christian life is one that's lived between two advents. Christ's first advent, when the Son of God became incarnate in the womb of the Virgin Mary, and his second advent, when Christ will return from heaven to make all things new and take us home to be with him for all eternity. As scripture says in Titus 2, 13, Christians are to wait for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is our great hope. This is what we long for with eager expectation that Christ our Lord, who just, just as surely as he ascended into heaven, he will one day descend from heaven. He will come down once again and take us home to be with him. And on that day, we will see our Savior face to face. And you and I will be free from sin and from the powers of the world and the flesh and the devil. We wait with longing, eager longing for that great day when Christ will come and will reveal his mercy to us by not condemning us for our sin but instead by giving us his righteousness, that righteousness we must have in order to see God. But that day that we long for is a day that's still to come. So while we are here on earth, we'll still fight against our sinful flesh. You and I still fight every day against that sin that remains that clings so closely to us. And Jude would have us prepared for that fight. The men that Jude warns the churches about, he says uh, in verse um, 19, are devoid of the Spirit. These men do not have the Spirit of God. They are not Christians. They are not united to Christ. Even though they claim to be part of the body of Christ, they are not believers. All true Christians have the spirit of Christ. Christ indwells his people by his spirit. And so to be devoid of the spirit is to be devoid of Christ. True Christians, on the other hand, are to be different. As we've seen, they must perpetually and without ceasing pray in the Holy Spirit who indwells them and points always to Jesus Christ. True Christians must not divide God's people, but rather build them up. True Christians must not love the world, but love God alone. And true Christians must eagerly await Christ's glorious return. As he goes on to say in those next few verses, though, Christians must also kill our sin. This idea of, of mortif mortifying our sin is what Jude has in mind when he uses that curious phrase at the end of verse 23, that we must ha be hating even the garment stained by the flesh. 
the Protestant reformer John Calvin very helpfully explains this phrase in his commentary. What, what does it mean? Uh, what, is, what does Jude mean by this garment stained by the flesh? And why do we have to hate uh, this, this piece of clothing? John Calvin says this, quote, This passage, which otherwise would appear obscure, will have no difficulty in it when the metaphor is rightly explained. Jude would have the faithful not only to beware of contact with vices, but that no contagion might reach them. He reminds them that everything that borders on vices is, is near to, and is near to them ought to be avoided. Everything that borders on vices and is near to them ought to be avoided. As when we speak of lasciviousness, we say that all excitements to lusts ought to be removed. The passage will also become clearer when the whole sentence is filled up. That is, that we should hate not only the flesh, but also the garment, which by a contact with it is infected. He then, that is Jude then, does not allow evil to be cherished by indulgence, so that he bids all preparations and all accessories, as they say, to be cut off, end quote. All our remaining sin must be killed. You and I, if we are to fulfill our duties in our sanctification, must mortify our sin. We must kill the sin that the world, the flesh, and the devil tempt us to commit every day. That is the baseline understanding of what we as Christians must do, and it's what it, part of what it means to grow in holiness, to be sanctified is that we kill our sin. But Jude actually takes that one step further. He not only says that you must be killing sin, but you must also avoid and even kill all accessories to sin. You must not only hate the flesh, but you must also hate the garment that is stained by the flesh. That is, you must hate those things that will lead to sin if you are not vigilant to protect yourself against them. Our two-year-old boy loves to play in water. Uh, I think some of you saw him last week trying to go for the baptism water uh, when, when James was baptized. He just loves to be in the water. And he has this uh, water table that we fill up for him in our backyard. But as soon as we put some water in it, he's standing over it with a handful of dirt or sand from the sandbox, ready to throw it in as well. He's not content just with the water. He needs the dirt as well. So when he's done playing with the, this water table, when he's ready to come inside, he's not just soaked all the way through. He's also filthy. Well, if we just were to take off his shirt when he comes in and put a clean shirt on him, he'll just end up wearing a different but still dirty shirt. First, we need to clean him off, and then we need to put the clean shirt on. What Jude is saying here is that we can clean ourselves up all we want. We can kill our flesh all day long, but if we're still wearing the shirt that's been stained by that filthy flesh, we're going to end up dirty. Jude takes for granted that we'll be killing our sin. It's what Christians must be about. But he also says that this isn't quite enough. It's not going quite far enough. 
we have to hate our sin enough to kill all the things that are associated with that sin, that remind us of our sin, that lead us back to our sin. If not, then you and I are just going to wind up right back where we were, entrenched so deeply in our sin, stuck in the miry bog of our own worldly passions. But what does this actually look like in practice? What does it look like for us to hate the garment stained by the flesh? You may be thinking of a few examples, but I'll give you some as well. The Presbyterian Church in America seems poised to split or splinter over the issue of whether or not it's appropriate for believers to identify with their sin. That is, can a believer in Jesus Christ call him or herself a gay Christian? A number of pastors and elders in our denomination say, to use Jude's metaphor here in verse 23, that so long as I'm hating the flesh, I can still wear this shirt that's been stained by that dirty flesh, right? But what Jude is saying is that that is not good enough because that filthy clothing will only entice to more sin. You'll be stuck in patterns of unrighteousness that God despises and that dishonors the name of Christ. Dear ones, the so-called gay Christian movement is completely incompatible with biblical Christianity. It's incredibly destructive and deeply saddening to tell someone that they can call themselves gay or that homosexual desires are okay so long as they're not acted on. That you can reject the act but affirm everything else about the lifestyle and still be without sin. That you can hate this particular sin, but take upon yourself or, or uh, be involved in all the different accessories or accoutrements that go along with that sin. That you can start conferences and join together with like-minded people to celebrate the LGBTQ plus agenda and talk about what it looks like to live as a gay Christian together. Doing that has only led and will only lead to more sin. The number of people who have gone from saying, I am a gay Christian, but I, I don't act on those passions. I, I, I believe that marriage is only to be between a man and a woman. Um, so I, won't, I, I have these desires, but I won't act on them. The number of people who say that, to then go on to uh, later in life to uh, be in a, an openly gay relationship, is staggering. Um, people like to say that slippery slopes don't exist, but gravity does. And, and sin does. And so, not hating that garment stained by the flesh has caused so many, so many people to fall back into patterns of sin. And and doing all of this and, and, and not, not hating the garment will only lead to more sin. It will only leave desperate sinners trapped in sin. Jude says that you and I must hate the garment that has been stained by the flesh. We must kill our sin, yes, but we also have to cut off all things that lead to sin. But this teaching from Jude doesn't just apply to this gay Christian issue. The same can be true of an alcoholic. 
If you were an alcoholic and you get sober after many years of this sin, the last place you should go to uh, meet people or to, uh, as some people say, evangelize uh, the lost is a bar. It's not that you can never be around bars or alcohol ever again, but why would you willfully put yourself in the position to be tempted to fall back into those patterns of sin? Or if you've been set free from addiction to pornography, it's a very, very bad idea for you to have unrestricted access to the internet. You might be killing your sin, but it only takes a few clicks to fall back into the old patterns of sin, and then you're right back where you started. Dear ones, you and I and all believers in Christ have been set free from the power of sin through the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ. What Jude is saying is that we must fight for the faith by not turning back, not allowing ourselves to indulge in just a, a little bit of those sinful activities or just some of the things that went along with the sin that we uh, that, 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 so in, that so entrapped us. No, what, what Judas is telling you, what, what God's word is telling you and me is that we must kill our sin. We've been set free from our sin. Don't turn back. Don't take for yourself a, a sinful identity or put yourself in the position to sin now that you are in Christ Jesus. We heard this morning from Romans chapter 6, where Paul exhorts believers to consider themselves dead to sin. Reckon yourself, understand yourself to be, know in your inner being, your heart of hearts, right down to the very marrow in your bones, that you are dead to sin. Only then will you be serious about the business of killing your sin. But you cannot kill your sin if you're still clinging to those external things, those things that led you to sin or what, that went along with your sin. Dear believer, Christ lived for you. Christ died for you. Christ rose again for you. Why would you still live in your sin? You are dead to sin. Know yourself to be dead to sin and be free, free in Christ to live for Christ. Let us pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the freedom that we have in Christ. We thank you that in Christ, all of our sin has been paid for on the cross. We thank you that Christ, our Lord, became sin for us so that we would become the righteousness of God. Christ our Lord has done it all. He has given to us life and breath and everything. He has given to us righteousness and faith and justification and sanctification. He will one day give us eternal life. We thank you that you have not spared your son, Father, but that you gave him up for us. We thank you that we have now Christ. May we lay hold of him by grace through faith. In Jesus' name.